So thank you, um, Dr. Schabner, for inviting me to, to speak here uh, again, and um, hope you're enjoying your lunch, and um, uh, carry on, please. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about T-cell therapies and how I think that this kind of therapy, um, which is basically using the immune system to treat cancer, um, is entering its next phase. Um, these are my disclosures. Um, so who here has heard of a CAR T-cell before? Okay, good. That means we've made massive strides in development and education, because if I had asked you that question um, five years ago, probably it would have been exactly zero. Um, so a CAR is a chimeric antigen receptor, um, and it's when it's introduced into a immune cell called a T-cell, um, it can redirect T-cells to have a specific uh, target on their surface that is not uh, what they in are endowed with naturally. Um, and so the basic CAR structure kind of looks like this, or at least this is how we draw it, um, where it has an antigen binding domain on the outside part of the cell. Um, and these are typically derived from antibodies. So um, you take the parts of the antibody that recognize a target and you link them together. Um, then there's a, a spacer domain or a hinge, a transmembrane domain. And then inside the car, there are um, molecular domains that enhance T cell function. Um, these are known as co-stimulatory domains. And so the T cells get signal one through the CD3 um, zeta molecule. And then they also get co-stimulation through a molecule like 41BB, for example. But there's a variety of other molecules that have been tested, including CD28 and others. Um, and so what's happened in the field recently is that there's been sort of an explosion on tweaking different parts of this anatomy um, to try uh, and see what if impact it has on the CAR T cell itself. And it turns out almost every single piece of it is important. Um, so the, the antibody binding domain can have different affinities, so it can stick on and off of a T cell um, with uh, for different uh, periods of time. They can be derived from different kinds of proteins, such as monoclonal antibodies, humanized antibodies, um, nanobodies, which are sort of single domain antibodies that come from uh, camels or camelids and uh, sharks. Um, they can ha you can change the length of the spacer domain. You can change the co-stimulatory domain. You can make mutations to make T cells have more or less strength of signal. Um, through the CD3 zeta. And you can introduce the CAR into different kinds of cells, like not just T cells, but also gamma, like subsets of T cells, like gamma delta cells, or natural killer cells, or IPS-derived cells. They can be either autologous, meaning coming from the patient um, who's going, then going to get it as therapy, or they can be generated as an off-the-shelf kind of product. CAR T cells can also be combined with a variety of other technologies, including um, gene editing. Um, so CRISPR-Cas or Talens um, have been used now in clinic. Um, you can introduce the CARs into the T cells using different gene delivery technologies. And you can add other things to the cell itself, like you can add backpacks that carry a nanoparticle, or you can add in cytokines that get secreted, um, or you can regulate expression of multiple genes um, while you're doing the gene editing or introducing this. So this is all just to say there are a lot of different ways to generate CAR T cells. Um, I'm going to show you a little bit about what has been done so far and why we're even bothering doing all of this. So I'll go um, briefly over some of the recent clinical data with CD19 CARs, and then I'm going to tell you about some of the newer uh, approaches that we've been developing at MGH. Um, so these are CD19-directed chimeric antigen receptor T cells in the clinic. Um, there are three that are either approved or in advanced clinical development. Um, these are called axicaptogene silolusal or Yascarta that is made by Kite. This is called Tisagenlic lusal or Kimrai that's made by Novartis. And this is called Lisacaptogene marilusal, um, which is made by uh, Juno Therapeutics, which is now Celgene, now BMS. Um, but the idea is they all take... 
um, a, a mouse monoclonal antibody to human CD19 um, called FMC63, and they're linked together. Um, but then that's where the similarities kind of stop. Um, the Yescarta product um, has a 28 spacer domain and a 28 transmembrane domain and, hit, and a intracellular domain and is introduced with a retroviral vector, whereas the Novartis and the Lisa Captagene Marilucil products um, use the 41BB co-stimulatory domain. And this actually has a big impact on how those T cells behave. Um, these cells will make a lot more cytokines. These cells will not make as many cytokines, but tend to persist a lot longer. Um, and then it's not just about the molecular construct, although there's a difference here in terms of how the hinge domain um, works, um, but you can also change the actual final cell product. So you can have either bulk cells or you can have defined composition, meaning they put it a certain number of CD4 T cells and a certain number of CD8 cells, and that is what the final drug product is. All of these are made through a process that is um, biologistically complicated, but scientifically simple. Um, and so what we start with is patients' own T-cells. Um, where They're collected through a process called leukophoresis. So this is about two hours in the chair. Um, and then those cells are shipped to a central manufacturing facility, which is everything that happens down here, where the cells are activated, they're gene modified, they're expanded, and then they're shipped back to the point of care um, where the patient is, and then they are infused um, intravenously, typically following a couple days of relatively low-dose chemotherapy that enhances the T-cell um, engraftment in the patients. Um, and what's really spectacular about this is the clinical data, um, which was all initially developed in the academic setting and then actually moved into the commercial setting. Um, so the first uh, CAR T cell that was approved was the Novartis Tisagen Lucil product, and this was in pediatric relapsed refractory acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, where um, 63 patients were initially uh, treated, um, and 81% of them had MRG-negative complete remissions, um, and an overall survival at six months of 90%, um, which for this patient population was a dramatic, dramatic improvement. Um, and so that became FDA-approved. Um, there was a similar product developed at Sloan Kettering called 1928Z, which was then um, commercialized by Juno Therapeutics. Um, unfortunately, in, their, in the Juno trial, um, they had a lot of toxicity, and so that's no longer under commercial development. But Sloan Kettering has continued to treat patients, and there they're seeing um, six-month overall survival of more um, uh, 57% among the patients with morphologic remission and 73% in the patients who just have minimal residual disease. Um, and then in the uh, commercial setting, um, Kite has also developed their product where in adults with B-cell ALL, um, they have an overall CR rate of 68%. Um, these are smaller um, registration studies, and it's not clear yet whether these are going to be approved um, but we'll wait and see. The other thing that's um, been shown with all of these products is dramatic efficacy in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Um, again, these are the three products. Two of these are approved, and LisaCell is still um, pending approval. Um, and what's remarkable here is that in these phase two registration studies, the six-month complete remission rate is on the order of 30 to 50% with all of the products. So even though I showed you that there are some tweaks um, to each of them and they don't all look exactly the same, at the end of the day, they all induce durable remissions at about the same rate. Where they differ a little bit is in the toxicity, um, and so some of them actually cause more or less cytokine release syndrome um, and uh, neurologic toxicity, um, with notably the Zuma, the Axi cell product causing the most um, neurologic toxicity. 
This number of 30 to 40% um, is impressive, uh, not only because it's so high in this patient population, but also because it's durable. Um, so the study now from AxiCell has published two-year results. And what you can see is that in terms of duration of response, progression-free survival, um, and overall survival, is that the curves become flat, which is what we kind of always looked for with checkpoint blockade. Um, but the curve is not just flat at the 20% line, it's flat at that 40% line. Um, and so this possibility of having having CAR T cells last dur uh, induced durable remissions is actually um, probably the most exciting thing about them. And so now there's, of course, efforts to try to move this to um, upfront, not, not necessarily all the way up front, but move up a line of therapy um, so that patients don't have to be exposed to quite as much chemotherapy and have quite as resistant disease um, before they can benefit from this potential therapy. Now, I had mentioned a little bit of toxicity before. Um, I'll just tell you uh, there's basically two kinds of T cell, CAR T cell mediated toxicity. Um, one that is uh, on target, which is not here, which is that um, normal B cells have CD19, and so you can lose your B cells for a part of the time, but that's um, generally not a clinically significant event. Um, but the other two, which are related to how the T cells work, but it's a bit of an off target effect, is cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity. And what I mean is that um, cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity are directly caused by expansion and activation of the CAR T cells. Um, and so you get these very high levels of these cytokines, which is what the same thing that you experience when you have a bad flu-like syndrome, um, except that it, this can be um, critical. Um, so high levels of interferon gamma, IL-6, IL-15, GMZSF, and others, and this presents with high fevers, low blood pressure, organ dysfunction. Um, and it can also result in a neurotoxicity as the brain gets exposed to these cytokines and the blood-brain barrier becomes leaky. There can be um, either localized focal edema or um, diffuse edema. Um, the onset of CRS typically occurs, um, it depends a bit on the product, um, but it can be from one to three days for the um, AxiCell product and more like five to seven days for the uh, Novartis product. And neurologic toxicity occurs one or two days later um, uh, from the peak of the cytokine release syndrome. Um, there are several novel approaches that are in clinical development, which all kind of focus on blocking the cytokines. So not really blocking the T cells themselves, although that is also um, at the preclinical development stage. Um, and one of the trials that we'll have open soon at Mass General is a phase two study using Anakinra, um, which is an IL-1 receptor beta blocker, um, prophylactically so that at the moment that the patients get their T cells, we'll also start giving them daily subcutaneous um, Anakinra in an effort to try to prevent the cytokine release syndrome and the neurologic toxicity that occurs afterwards. <clears throat> Now, what about um, the other uh, elephant in the room, and that's mechanisms of resistance. Um, and so although uh, some of those patients have very durable responses, it's, of course, a little over half that don't have durable responses. And why is that? Well, in broad categories, it's for two reasons. Um, one is that those patients may not have good T cells to begin with. So if you have a young, healthy, robust T cell, um, it's more likely to undergo expansion after, after infusion. Uh, but sometimes T cells don't have that. And the way we recognize it is because we don't see that those T cells expand in the patient. Um, they don't proliferate or they don't persist. Um, and some of the potential ways to get around this is to give the CAR T cells in combination with checkpoint blockade, for example. And there's some clinical studies to show, um, at least anecdotally, that this can work. Um, there's also the possibility of using other small molecule drugs, including a brutinib and other BTK and ITK inhibitors um, that seem to reinvigorate T cells even um, if you if you give it 
particularly before you do the apheresis and then you give patients um, those T cells, those T cells are sort of reinvigorated and have improved um, uh, efficacy. And of course, the other, which I put with a question mark, is that if you start with young, healthy T cells from a young, healthy donor um, who hasn't been exposed to chemotherapy and hasn't had cancer, um, then those T cells may potentially be um, uh, more functional uh, and sort of better fit. Um, but then you're also uh, potentially buying other complications, uh, including those possibility of rejection. Uh, so uh, those T cells, even if they proliferate and are young and fit, they may not end up having the kind of persistence that you get with autologous products. The other way that um, patients can be uh, can either start off with resistant disease or develop secondary resistance is due to target antigen loss. Um, and so this is a, a sort of phenomenon that's seen throughout medicine whenever we treat patients with one particular targeted inhibitor or one particular antibiotic and you're treating a population of either bugs or a population of cells, there can be pre-existing variants that don't have that target. And so those will reemerge and grow. And there's been a variety of ways where that has been demonstrated now to occur with CAR T cells targeting CD19, including splice variants that emerge where the binding epitope of 19 is no longer visible to a car, reversion to a myeloid phenotype where the tumor comes back, but now it's differentiated down a completely different lineage and doesn't look like a B cell anymore. There's also frame shift mutations in CD19, which also result in lack of exposure um, to the car. And then these last two are sort of in vitro and um, uh, mouse uh, phenomenon, which we don't know yet actually happens in patients. But one is that it's possible to transduce the B cell with a CAR, um, and then that B cell looks like it's it's a leukemic cell, but it looks like it's CAR positive and also CD19 negative because the CAR will kind of bend over and um, bind the, the CD19. And so it actually protects that B cell from CAR, CAR T cell mediated killing. Um, and that's been replicated. The, the B cell transduction with the CAR has occurred clinically, but the masking and mechanism of resistance um, has not been proven. And then the final one is trogocytosis of CD19. And trogocytosis is basically um, kind of the opposite of the B cell being transduced with a CAR. It's a, a CAR T cell that rips the CD19 off the tumor cell. Um, and so then the tumor cell looks like it's 19 negative and the CAR T cell looks like it's CAR positive and 19 positive. Um, and so this is something that's been demonstrated in vitro and also in mice, but not clear um, how frequently it actually occurs in patients. So kind of taking them a, a little bit one at a time here, and I won't spend all of the time on this. Let's go back to just T-cell fitness. And um, um, the idea here is this is T-cell exhaustion. It's PD-1 positive, TIM-3 positive, LAG-3 negative. And this is some of the markers that we use as a hallmark of exhaustion. Um, and they basically, they can't do any work anymore. They're just done. Um, so even though they're around, um, they can't kill, they can't proliferate, they can't produce cytokines. Um, and the strongest data for this is um, work out of Penn um, that showed that at least in chronic lymphocytic leukemia in patients treated with CAR-19, um, none of the disease markers mattered. So whether the patients had a P53 mutation, whether they had had one or three or five prior lines of therapy, whether they had had um, disease that was initially responsive and then became refractory or primary refractory, none of that mattered at all. The only thing that mattered was the phenotype of the T cells that they got um, from the phoresis and at the end of manufacturing. So if they were non-exhausted, early memory T cells, those patients were the ones who had complete responses. Everybody who had exhausted T cells based on their phenotype, those patients did not have responses, um, which I think is really interesting. Kind of turns oncology on its head a little bit because we really focus on prognosticating based on tumor mutations and tumor markers. And this is really adding another dimension where we really need to start prognosticating um, based on the fitness of the T cell. 
All is not lost, however, even in patients with CLL who have some of the most exhausted T cells, um, they can actually be rejuvenated. Um, one of the ways to rejuvenate them, and this was found, you know, partly based on clinical findings and also partly a little bit of a guess, um, that if you treat those patients with a brutinib um, for at least six months, then their T cells actually start to behave more like normal cells. They become transducible and they can proliferate. Um, and so here, for example, we have patients with CLL at baseline and those T cells, you can see that their population doubling is a mean of zero um, in vitro when you stimulate them. After one month of ibrutinib, it's actually no better, but after at least five cycles or six months of ibrutinib, um, then you can actually start to get T cell proliferation. And so there's now been a pilot clinical trial of CAR-19 cells in patients with CLL um, having had at least six months of ibrutinib and the morphologic CR rate is much higher than it was um, when it was the pre-ibrutinib era. Um, let's go through some of the um, mechanisms of resistance against and target antigen loss. I'll just sort of, I'd forgotten that these slides were here, so I'll go through them kind of quickly. This is a splice variant, so you basically lose the binding here of the CAR-19. This is where T cells come back and looking like, the I'm sorry, the tumor cells come back looking like myeloid cells. There's a CD14 positive, 64 positive, DR positive. Um, this is an example of frame shift mutations where this is wild type CD19. And these are all of the different mutations that were identified in a global study of pediatric ALL um, when their patients came back with CD19 negative disease. These are all the different ways that 19 was mutated and occurred in a frame shift mutation. This is the CAR-B masking phenomenon where you can see that um, here is CD19 positive. This is a tumor cell, CAR-19 uh, uh transduce, this is the red, and this is a sort of overlay where you can see that there's the cars are sort of binding the 19. Um, and this was first observed in a patient um, where cars were being tracked by qPCR. And what happened here is that the qPCR started to go up, but this was concurrent with the patient relapsing. Um, and so this sort of indicated that the patient's um, leukemia had been transduced with a CAR, um, but this is their actually CAR-positive T cells um, was zero. So this was sort of the first indication that it's possible to transduce the tumor, although it did not actually cause any kind of um, enhanced growth properties of the tumor itself that was carefully tested in mouse models, because then you need to think about whether you need to remove all the tumors before you transduce them with CARs. But um, there was actually no improved um, growth of the the T cells, uh, I'm sorry, the tumor cells. Um, and then I'll skip over that. This is the trogocytosis slide. Um, so to get around all of these target escape variants, um, I think the most direct route to this is to find new targets and preferentially be able to, uh, preferably be able to target more than one at a time. Um, and so one of the targets that we started to make CAR T cells for is um, CD37. And CD37 is a tetraspanin antigen that's expressed in B-cell malignancies um, and in normal B-cells. And what's interesting is it's also expressed in a fraction of malignant T-cells, but not in normal T-cells. And so this is a potential antigen that could be used either in CD19 negative escape um, or in upfront lymphoma or even in T-cell lymphomas. Um, and so we've developed a chimeric antigen receptor targeting CD37. It uses a similar backbone, so sort of the standard CAR anatomy that I showed you in the first slide, where we have a heavy chain and a light chain that's specific to CD37 that's derived from a monoclonal antibody. Um, and it has a uh, transmembrane domain and hinge domain from uh, CD8 and then uh, 
co-stimulation with 4-1-BB and CD3 Zeta. And then we have a reporter gene on it just to help us look for the CAR-positive cells um, with truncated EGFR. And what we showed in preclinical studies is that if we take um, mice and engraft them with a B-cell malignancy, um, and then we treat them with either CAR-19 or CAR-37 as a comparison, um, we can basically cure the mice with either one, and they behave almost identically. And then if we take a T-cell malignancy, and this is a patient-derived xenograft model, and we treat the mice with either CAR-19 or CAR-37, CAR-19 does nothing for a T-cell malignancy, as would be expected, um, but can in, uh, induce remissions in these mice with a T-cell malignancy. And so based in part on these data and various other data in vitro that I wasn't going to show you today, um, we've actually opened now an IND and a phase one clinical trial that is open for enrollment at Mass General. Um, and I'll show you kind of how we did this all in the academic setting, which is um, we had a, had a very talented postdoc who did all of the preclinical work. Um, we collaborated with Jerry Ritz here at the um, cell manufacturing facility of the Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center um, to do the scale-up of vector and CAR T-cell manufacturing. Um, we worked with um, Dr. Matthew Fergal to design the clinical study. Um, we established um, correlative um, PK and PK. PD assays um, so that we can identify mechanisms of toxicity and resistance um, with a new director of immune monitoring. This is Kathleen Gallagher. And we worked with the Cancer Center Protocol Office, this is Jamie Brown, to actually set up and activate the clinical trial. Um, and this is what the trial looks like. It's called a phase one clinical trial with CAR 37 T cells for patients with relapsed refractory CD37 positive hematologic malignancy. So it's a basket study where we include patients with CD19 uh, with B cell lymphomas and also with CD37 expressing T cell lymphomas. We've developed an assay to look for CD37 expression since we don't know yet what the incidence and frequency is going to be of that expression marker, um, particularly in T cell malignancies. Um, and then the primary endpoint is going to be safety and tolerability, as would be expected for a phase one trial. The secondary is really about biologic activity and markers of efficacy. And then the exploratory studies are about um, e evaluation of expansion, persistence, phenotype, and potential mechanisms of toxicity and resistance um, in this patient population. Um, what's a little bit different about our trial compared to the CAR-19 studies is that because we're manufacturing locally, um, we will have a seven to eight day vein to vein turnaround time. So the patients will get Fereast on say a Monday and then they get their T cells back either the next Monday or Tuesday. Um, and we do that partly because it's local and partly because we compressed the manufacturing timelines um, to be able to do this so that in patients with chemotherapy refractory disease, we didn't have to bridge them in the meantime. Um, and so the patients will get their lymphodepleting chemotherapy, which is again, low dose chemotherapy, um, while their T cells are being manufactured. Um, and then we follow the patients after their infusion, of course. So I've talked to you about targeting one new antigen, but what we really want to do eventually is target more than one at a time, just like we give combination chemotherapy and um, multiple antibiotics for particularly difficult um, bacteria. Uh, and so these are kind of a schematics of different ways of approaching multi-targeted CAR T cells. Um, if you think about it as the red and the blue, um, one way is to just transduce two different cell populations with two different vectors, and so then you have a pool of red and blue. Um, and this has been done before in patients where they get two different CAR products at the same time. Um, and this, for example, is a sort of a method that was used to demonstrate that second-generation CARs with co-stimulation were better than first-generation CARs, and patients got one of each. Um, it's a sl slightly ineffective uh, or inefficient way of doing this because you have to make two vectors and two CAR products, and so it doubles your costs. Um, another way to do this is to take one cell population and just put two vectors on it, and so now you have red and blue and one T cell. Um, and this has actually been shown in preclinical models to be better than this. So 
one cell population, two vectors is better than pooled cars. Um, but still, you have to use two vectors. And so a different approach that's been made is to take one cell population with one vector that includes a tandem car. And so here, the red and the blue are sort of linked together molecularly. So this is all used in one vector. The challenge with this is that there are a lot of ways of doing this. So you can put the vectors in a loop like this, or you can stack them in different orders um, to try to get them to form the right antigen specificities. And there's no rules for doing this, so you have to test them all empirically. And so it does make it a little bit more challenging to do it this way um, at the preclinical level. But then at the clinical level, it's much more efficient. Um, a third way or a fourth way of doing this is to actually use the ideal, not a political statement, purple car, right? So it's not red and blue, it's actually we're all purple. Um, and by purple, I mean that it's an antigen that can, or a car that can bind both red and blue antigens. Um, and so this would be a way of overcoming heterogeneity without having to have sort of complicated car structure. Um, and I'll show you that we've kind of focused on these last um, three mechanisms. The third one is having a car T that doesn't have another specificity attached to it, but that instead secretes either a monoclonal antibody or a bispecific T-cell engager antibody. And so this is a way of delivering an antigen-specific therapy to the tumor microenvironment without having to have every single car targeting that antigen. And I think this is particularly useful for antigens that um, may be problematic in terms of their um, expression profile in patients. So um, if a particular antigen is expressed in an essential organ like the skin or the lungs, um, then you wouldn't necessarily want to put that into a car, but you could have a car that secretes something, um, that secretes an antigen targeting or an antibody targeting that because then you'll have very um, sort of localized production in the tumor. So I'll show you it's not just about diagrams. There's actually um, science behind it. Um, so this is an example of a car, a tandem car for CD79B, um, which is also a B-cell antigen. It's associated with the B-cell receptor, so a very safe um, antigen to go after. And what we showed here is we first made just a CD79B car, and we showed that 19 and 79B um, both induce remission um, equivalently in a mouse model with a patient-derived xenograft of mantle cell lymphoma. And then when we made a tandem car of 1979 or 79-19, um, we were able to show that in a CD19 negative uh, relapsed model or a mixed model, that the combination, the dual antigen targeting is actually much better than targeting um, 19 alone. Um, and this here, we're only imaging the 19 negative, And so um, you can't see what happened here. And the uh, CAR-1979, um, it turns out that 79 is better than 1979. Um, so the order of the red and the blue actually do make a difference. And this is just an example of having to test this empirically. So now once we had this dual CAR, we wanted to find out, well, is it going to be better or worse in the upfront setting? Because we certainly don't want to take a hit on the 19 because we know that 19 works so well in patients. And so we did sort of a stress test where we gave the mice progressively lower doses of CAR T cells and we were able to show that the dual specific CAR, so 79-19 actually works just as well as 19 alone. And in fact, a little bit better than 79B alone. So this is the vector that we'll want to take into patients. And the idea is that we're now offering patients in the quote upfront setting, um, a single CAR T cell that can target, that gets them both the 19 um, targeting that works so well, and then an additional target 79B um, in effort to prevent CD19 negative relapse. Um, 
I just wanted to mention that I'm not the only one who's thinking of these sorts of things. My colleague Narali Shah um, at the NCI has done a similar sort of study with um, targeting CD19 and CD20, um, and she's able to she's been able to show that um, in both 19 uh, escape and upfront uh, lymphoma that she's been able to get some complete remissions um, with this sort of um, strategy. Um, it turns out that CAR-T, of course, is a platform that goes beyond just lymphoid malignancy. Um, there has been a lot of work done in uh, multiple myeloma now targeting the antigen called B-cell maturation antigen. Um, this was first done at the NCI in an academic study with a CD28 CAR. Uh, Jim Kogendorfer was able to show an overall response rate of 81%, but these were actually not durable. This got licensed to Bluebird Bio, which then changed the co-stimulatory domain and the vector, um, and they've been able to show um, a very high response rate in patients with relapsed refractory uh, multiple myeloma and a medium progression-free survival of almost a year. Um, and so there's an expectation that this will likely be FDA approved soon for this patient population. Now, what's happened is that because BCMA has been so successful, there's been a kind of a rash of BCMA-targeted CAR T-cell trials around the world, and there are 18 trials that are open and recruiting in the U.S., um, but unfortunately, all but three of them are targeting the same antigen. And so what we kind of predict is that there's going to be BCMA escape variants that also occur in multiple myeloma, and in fact, there's been several case reports that have shown that to, be, um, uh, to occur already. What we don't know yet is how often that's going to happen. And so um, this is right now more based on the, the proof of concept that it can happen. Um, and so what we did is we wanted to go back and look at, well, what BCMA is and doesn't have any cousins that could potentially be targeted? And the answer is yes. Um, BCMA is a TNF family member, and it's quite related to a molecule called TASI. And these actually together give plasma cells improved survival. Um, and like BCMA, TASI is only expressed on plasma cells and mature B cells, and so we think that it's a targetable antigen. Um, the interesting thing, too, is that in the case of BCMA and TASI, they actually bind the same ligand. Um, it's called April. Uh, and so we could potentially take April as our purple car um, and make it bind both BCMA and TASI. And so there, by using this binding domain, we can target two antigens at the same time. So the first question was, well, is TASI expressed in multiple myeloma patients? And the answer was yes. Um, it's more uniformly expressed at diagnosis than it is um, after multiple lines of therapy. Um, and the same is true for BCMA, but it is expressed in multiple myeloma plasma cells. And when we generated a purple car in either a monomeric form um, we were able to show that um, this car could kill in vitro, but it actually bound to BCMA and TASI um, relatively poorly. And so to try to increase that affinity of binding, what we did is we trimerized it because April naturally binds in a trimeric fashion. And so we called this tripral. Um, and the idea here is that we looked at what kind of structure does it form at the cell membrane, and it turns out all of these things form these conglomerates of three. And so with tripral, we actually have nine binding domains um, on the surface of the car. Um, and when we tested our tripral and we compared it to the monomeric April and to the sort of standard BCMA car um, that's in the clinic in a multiple myeloma um, mouse model, we were able to show, replicate the in vivo data or the patient data that BCMA cars can induce remission in these mice. The April cars were actually not um, sufficient to induce remission. We think this is because of their relatively poor binding, but the tripral cars were. And then when we took BCMA negative multiple myeloma lines, which we engineered using CRISPR-Cas9 editing, we were able to show that now the BCMA cars are ineffective because they no longer have BCMA, um, but the tripral cars can actually induce remission in these mice, and we think this is because of their targeting through TASI. 
And so this is um, another product that's getting into clinic, hopefully in the next year. Um, what about targeting solid tumors? And I know I only have a few minutes left, so I might go quickly through some of the last um, couple of slides. Um, there's multiple challenges for using CAR T cells to target solid tumors. Um, for one thing, uh, there's not that many really great antigen targets in solid tumors, um, and the tumors are heterogeneous. And so being able to target heterogeneity is quite desirable, which means that you need to find more than one tumor-specific antigen. Um, any other um, major issue in solid tumors is that there's a very hostile tumor microenvironment um, that kind of exhausts T cells, um, even though um, they haven't necessarily been exposed to a long time of um, antigen exposure. Um, there's also upregulation of checkpoint molecules, and there's these other immunosuppressive cells that come in and turn off the T cells. Um, so let's take them sort of one at a time about how we're going to get there. Um, so when I was at Penn, before I, I came to Mass General, um, we designed a car targeting uh, a mutated antigen called EGFR variant 3. Um, and EGFR variant 3 is a, is a really interesting um, mutation and target antigen uh, because it results from the uh, deletion of a big chunk of the extracellular portion of the epidermal growth factor receptor. Um, and there's this insertion of this new uh, amino acid residue um, at the junction. And so this is an immunogenic epitope, and it's an oncogenic driving mutation. So there is no normal cell that expresses EGFR variant 3. However, the challenge with it is that the only tumor that really has a lot of EGFRV3 is glioblastoma. So you're sort of um, tunneled into just that disease indication for this. And it's not even homogeneously expressed in patients who have G um, GBM. And so we did have to develop an assay to look for it and quantify it. Um, and we expected that there could be antigen escape variants that would occur. Um, but being able to target V3 as an oncogenic mutation was nevertheless desirable, especially because it's part of the cancer-initiating cell. Um, so we did a series of experiments to try to uh, specifically target V3 and avoid targeting normal EGFR. We humanized the car and selected for the construct that had the biggest difference between binding V3 and binding wild-type EGFR. Um, we developed an EGFR V3 assay, and we opened a clinical trial, a uh, phase one clinical trial, to treat 10 patients with EGFR V3 positive glioblastoma. Um, we opened the study knowing that we had 10 patient slots. And in the first year that we were open, we had 400 patients send us their tumor samples um, looking for EGFR V3 expression um, and hoping to take part in the trial. So it's an example of when there's a really big unmet clinical need. Um, if you open the trial, the patients will come. Um, so one of the things we found here is we gave a single dose of CAR T cells into the vein um, and then we looked in the first three patients, we looked by MRI um, 28 days later. Um, I not good enough to show you, uh, to read all the MRIs to you, but um, basically we saw some flare changes indicating that there was an immune response going on, but we didn't really see drastic uh, regression of the tumor. Um, after those first three patients were treated, we had sort of changed our approach a little bit, where instead of just giving the CARs and then waiting 28 days to get an MRI, um, we gave the CARs, but then um, we gave them at a time where we knew that the patients would need surgery. Uh, and so we gave the CARs, and then either one week or two weeks later, they had a surgical resection of their tumor. Um, and part of the reason here was, first of all, we knew that they would need the surgery, and so we just changed the timing of when we were going to give the CAR. But it also gave us the opportunity to look for whether the CAR T cells got to the brain tumor, whether they had any effect on the antigen, uh, and what happened in the tumor microenvironment. Uh, and so what we saw is that we did often get targeting of EGFR variant 3 because um, the pre-CAR infusion um, copy numbers were much higher than the post-infusion. And this was antigen-specific because wild-type EGFR was not affected. 
What we also saw is that there was a robust T-cell infiltrate after we gave the CARs, um, but many of them were actually not CAR-positive cells. In fact, many of them ended up being regulatory T-cells that are very immunosuppressive based on their expression of 25 and FOXP3, um, and the tumor upregulated PDL1. So really what happened is that we induced this massive compensatory um, immunosuppressive response in the tumor microenvironment, and we didn't target um, everything in the, uh, we only targeted the V3. We didn't target all these other antigens on GBM. And so when I came to Mass General, I wanted to come up with a strategy to be able to target that wild type EGFR, which was all over the GBM. Um, but of course, it's not really a targetable antigen on its own because it's expressed in the lungs and skin and the gut. And so the strategy we came up with was to build an EGFR V3 as a tumor-specific CAR, um, but then have that T-cell secrete a bispecific T-cell and cadre antibody. So in the tumor microenvironment, target EGFR, which is not in other parts of the brain, and instead also leverage all those existing T-cells or around or that infiltrated the brain tumor and have those become the effectors here. Um, and I was very excited to see that um, the fellow who came into my lab to work on this had previously worked on um, bispecific T-cell engagers and had actually shown that even Tregs can kill with a bispecific T-cell engager. And so all of those infiltrating Tregs could potentially become killers in that tumor microenvironment. One of the advantages of having it this be a particularly a bispecific T-cell engager um, is that they're very they're very small, so they're rapidly cleared in the systemic circulation by the kidney. So it's a way of sort of maximizing the EGFR targeting in the brain tumor um, where it's not getting constantly cleared and minimizing the potential for toxicity um, because basically all of the rest of the tissues it will be um, completely cleared. Um, so this is what the vectors look like, and since I'm a little low on time, I won't show it to you, but um, all of these are basically bispecifics. We showed in vitro that the, the bites were actually binding. Both business ends of the bites worked, um, where we could bind the tumor antigen, but we could also bind the primary T cells. And that's shown kind of in a confocal microscopy picture here, where um, the cars all are red, and then the bispecific T cell engagers, um, when they bind to EGFR, they look green here. So this is a control. And then here is a car that has little islands of yellow where the bites are bound to itself. And here is a completely green cell. Um, so this has been coded in bites that have been secreted by this cell, um, but it's not actually a car positive cell. And when we look at this in vitro, here's a, an example where we have car bites on the top and then of a transwell experiment and tumor cells on the bottom with untransduced T cells. And so what happens is the bite will actually filter through the transwell and then redirect these untransduced T cells to become killers. And you can measure the disappearance of the tumor, um, which happens here through cell impedance. Um, and this also works with T-regulatory cells. So you can change these untransduced cells to be either conventionals or regulatories, and they will still kill the tumor. And I'm going to skip that and just say that um, the carbites could actually induce responses in both mixed tumors, so heterogeneous tumors, um, where there's a mixture of cells that express V3 and those that don't, um, and you can actually get clearance of tumor um, in these mice. And it can also induce clearance of tumor in mice that bear um, glioblastoma that does not have EGFR V3 at all. Uh, and so just by having the secretion of the bite is enough to induce remission. And in this case, we gave the CAR T cells into the ventricles of the mice. Um, and in about 80% of the mice, we were able to clear tumor. 
Importantly, we also developed a toxicity model um, to, to confirm uh, and assess and verify that the bites would not cause uh, EGFR-directed toxicity. So this was a skin graft where we took human skin and we grafted it onto immunodeficient mice and then gave carbites um, intravenously to sort of maximize how much they would get exposed to the bites. Um, and we were able to show that the bites with EGFR actually did not cause any skin toxicity. And we had a positive control here where we did target EGFR with a CAR, and we get rejection of the skin graft with a massive T-cell infiltrate and apoptosis of the keratinocytes, and none of that occurred um, with the CAR bites targeting EGFR. So in conclusion, um, there are multiple ways of overcoming uh, resistance and toxicity. Um, in terms of T-cell exhaustion, start at the bottom, we talked about drug combinations and gene editing. In terms of toxicity, we're going for cytokine blockade in the clinic that goes beyond um, standard of care, tocilizumab. Um, and in terms of preclinical development, we're focusing multi-targeted CAR T-cells um, that are using leveraging creative approaches depending on the expression profile of the antigens in question. And with that, I'd like to thank the people who did the work. Um, so I think I've uh, showed their pictures along the way. This is Brian Choi, who did the glioblastoma work, Irina Scarfo who did the lymphoma work in 37 and in 79B. Um, Matt Fragalt has done the clinical trial design. Um, Kathleen Gallagher is doing the immune monitoring. Um, Andrea Schmitz did the triprocar. Um, and everyone else is working on projects that I haven't disclosed yet. Um, and I also wanted to thank our funding sources. And with that, I'll thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to take questions. have raced through it. <laughs> I had two cups of coffee this morning. So. Lung, prostate, ovary. Yes. Um, so, yes, so there's... Uh, there's work certainly around the country focusing on other solid tumors, including prostate, um, mesothelioma, uh, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer. Um, are there I don't I mean, some of these, I guess, are shared antigens yes. with, yeah. I don't know, developmental uh, right. states. But are, you know, you're really lucky with the B <laughs> that you can yes. you can just ablate it. So. That's really a unique example, I guess. For sure. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest challenges with CARs is yeah. that most antigens, especially on solid tumors, are shared antigens. Yeah. And so um, I think the sort of standard CAR approach is going to be difficult, um, not necessarily impossible. I mean, people have targeted mesothelin and PSMA without massive on-target toxicity. Um, so it, I think it's possible, but we don't know yet. I think... You know, with liquid tumors, we were um, lucky in that, yes, the target is the normal cell that expresses the target is dispensable, but we saw toxicity, but we also saw dramatic efficacy. Um, in the solid tumors so far, um, we just haven't seen a lot of either. Uh, and so we don't know how much of it is that the T cells are not expanding, and that's why we're not seeing the on-target toxicity, um, but it's also perhaps why we're not seeing the efficacy so uh, yeah and you really think the the uh, microenvironment is playing a big role for solid tumors in terms of discouraging responses um 
I think we all sort of think that it's playing a role. I'm not sure that that's the only reason that we haven't seen tremendous responses. Um, and I would also say that there have been, I didn't show the slides, but there have been some responses, um, some complete responses. And so it's not that it never happens. It's just that the frequency with which they happen is still a little bit low. Um, so there's been a complete remission demonstrated in glioblastoma, um, which was in the New England Journal of Medicine, because I think that very rarely happens in GBM. Um, there's been complete remissions now described in prostate cancer, in synovial cell sarcoma, um, I haven't seen it yet in pancreatic, but there's definitely been partial responses. So I think, you know, increasing the potency of the T cell, um, perhaps with combinations, perhaps with chemotherapy or other immunotherapies, um, I think there's still room to grow. Uh, it's that's not over. Yeah. Let me think about it. Um, I guess not everybody. So in the glioblastoma complete remission case, I don't think that they had cytokine release syndrome, but they also gave the CARs into the ventricle. Um, so it were not given systemically. And in some of the others, uh, like synovial cell sarcoma and um, prostate cancer, yes, they've had cytokine release syndrome. So it's almost like if you're not seeing that, it means that your T cell is just not expanding um, probably enough. And so I think you... Um, We'll know that we're on to something in solid tumors when we start to see more cytokine release syndrome. I'm probably the only one who gets really excited when patients have really high fevers. I, I mean, I know that when I attend on the floor and um, we have a patient with CAR-T and they have a fever, I'm like walking around smiling. And um, it's only for that patient, right? Because usually having a high fever on Lunder 10 is not a good thing. But um, in this one sort of setting, it actually kind of is. Thank you.